for your Son and for the eternal life that you've given to us in him. We are forever grateful for that, that you have opened our eyes to the truth of who he is and all that you have done through him and for us in him. We thank you also for your spirit, the spirit of truth, to lead us into all things that are necessary for us to know, to show us things to come. And we pray that you would minister to us, to teach us today. We thank you for your word that's preserved the truth. We pray that as we read it, we can understand it and remember it, and you would apply it to our lives. And Lord, we do thank you so much for your coming kingdom. And we long for that day when righteousness will fill the earth. We pray that we might each be ready for whatever is ahead and that you can tell us on that coming day, well done, good and faithful and wise servant. Bless this time we have together. Rebuke the enemy. Keep him from interfering in any way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday, um, hopefully, we looked at um, some passages in the Old Testament that I think show that the salvation that you and I enjoy is not something that began at Pentecost, but that it actually began with Adam and the woman, later named Eve, that God has been saving people since sin entered the world the same way, either in anticipation of Christ coming or, in our case, looking back on Christ having come, the basis of salvation was always faith in God's sacrifice. It is faith alone in Christ alone by which we are justified and through which we... uh, Obtain the gift of eternal life. But once having received that life, God now calls us as his children to certain responsibilities. And those responsibilities are for his glory, but also for our good. And so we do have conditions all over the book that we read, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those conditions apply to the degree of blessings that we can receive here and in the world to come or in the ages to come. And a failure to recognize that really confuses a great many people. And that's why we have conflicting theologies, the Arminian view, the Calvinist view, that actually, instead of bringing clarity, bring darkness to many passages. So we're going to hopefully clarify some things. And last time we looked at these passages in the Old Testament in order to justify the view that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things that were written about the Hebrews, particularly those coming out of Egypt into the promised land, that that history was recorded for our instruction and it is relevant because those people were redeemed. This is not an unsaved rabble that comes out of Egypt that is somehow not justified or trying to prove that they're saved or trying to win their salvation through works. This is a redeemed people. And as such, they are very instructive to us. Now, just one other passage, and that would take us to Exodus. Notice Exodus chapter 4, 
Just one more statement that indicates, to me at least, that um, those coming out of Egypt were, in fact, redeemed. You notice in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, when Moses goes back to them. And by the way, you have a little typological instruction there. Um, Moses was rejected the first time he came to his people, wasn't he? And remember, he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. And then he had to flee Egypt. And the Hebrews resented his intrusion and even challenged him. And so he had to go into exile, didn't he? And just like our brother noted this morning, when he was in exile, he obtained a Gentile bride. And then he comes back and his people receive him. You see in that, that uh, event the typology of Christ. Christ, rejected by his brethren the first time, and in his absence obtains a Gentile bride, and when he returns, he's received by his people. Precisely what we will see in the case of Christ. But in chapter 4, verse 31, notice what it says. After the testimony of Moses and Aaron, the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, I think the word that sticks out of that passage to me is they believed. What did they believe? Well, they believed in the testimony that God had given that Moses was now going to deliver them. Well, go to chapter 12 now, because you find that they believe something else also. Chapter 12, and we won't read this all simply for time constraints. I wish we could go through this. This is a wonderful study. But chapter 12 is the introduction of the beginning of a new era. And in chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 1, the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be unto you the first month of the year to you. Now, that month, Abib, uh, later called Nisan, happened to be the seventh month of the ancient calendar, but it became the first month. And it corresponds to our March-April uh, month. This is what would become um, the feast of Passover and uh, unleavened bread, first fruits. It happens in the spring of the year. And once they were settled in the land, it was actually the first full moon after the almond tree bloomed. And that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> you know, the almond tree that bloomed um, in the test of who would be high priest. Remember how God determined who the high priest would be? The princes of Israel brought their rods, their staffs, and God said, the one that blooms will be my selection. Well, Aaron's rod bloomed, and it blossomed and then produced almonds. Hmm. The almond tree blooming. Now, in Israel, the first full moon following the blooming of the almond tree is Passover. And that's what we're going to read about here. So all of these things fit together to perform or to show us um, things to come. This is all prophetic. It is all prophetic about the Son of God. Now what Moses tells the people to do 
is on the 10th of the month, in verse 3, the 10th day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to him take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to the eating shall, be, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evenings, or literally between the evenings. Well, the reason I go to that passage is, that is a testimony about God's Son. How do I know that? Well, because on the 10th of the month Nisan, 32 AD, Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and he was hailed as Messiah, son of David, the 10th of the month. And during those following days, he was inspected by all of the religious experts, and there was no fault found in him, because indeed he was a lamb without blemish. Then on the 14th day of that month, he was taken, arrested, crucified between the evenings, and died as the Lamb of God. You can't make this stuff up. Moses could not have predicted that with accuracy. This whole book is written by an intelligence outside time that also controls events. This testimony about his son, these people believed, even though they didn't really understand. We can't assume that they understand, understood any of this. But they killed the lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost, and they were saved. Faith alone in Christ alone. This people is redeemed. Well, now we come to the book of Numbers. Now, by the way, if you want to read a very thorough study on the timing of that whole prophecy, um, I'd recommend uh, Sir Robert Anderson, the coming prince. He worked through that whole scheme with the uh, Astronomer Royal of Britain. Uh, Robert Anderson was the chief inspector of Scotland Yard at the time, a brilliant man, certainly one familiar with evidence. And uh, that work is worth your time. But, you see, it's not necessary. If you're into apologetics, it's great. But when we see this kind of a portrait of Christ and then the fulfillment, I hope that strengthens you in your faith. When you have doubts and fears, you wonder, where is this all leading? Understand that you have placed your faith in a God who has given you the truth. And this book is the only source of definitive truth that we have in this world. Do you know how privileged we are to have that? Everything we need for time and eternity, the essential truth we need is right here in our hands. And we need to pay attention to it. And we need to pay attention to some of these passages that are rather unpleasant also, like the book of Numbers. When we go to the, the book of Numbers in chapter 13, verse 1 or verse 2 says, The Lord speaking to Moses now, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. 
Of every tribe of their uh, fathers shall you send a man, everyone a ruler among them. Notice the Lord says, the land that I give you. This was not something that God wanted to restrain. He wants to give them the land. And he wants them to go out, understand what it's like, so that they can develop an appreciation for it. So he's the one that commands them to send the spies into the land. Well, you know the story. The spies come back and they say, oh, yes, it's a wonderful land. They bring back fruit from the land. And they all acknowledge that it's a wonderful land, but there is adversity there. There are walled cities. There are the Nephilim. Some translations read giants. Uh, That's trouble. And rather than face that adversity... Uh, they would just as soon go back to Egypt. (laughs) Um, There is a truth here for the kingdom applicable to us. It's wonderful to be saved, isn't it? Now, we didn't read it, but we could go back to Exodus 15 and read the Song of Moses and all of the rejoicing. And these people are just so filled with the joy of God. They've been redeemed. They were slaves. Now they're free. They watched the Red Sea part. Their enemies drowned in that flood that followed And they're free. And they are God's. And God's going to give them this land. How wonderful. And yet, a year and a half later, they're out here at Kadesh Barnea. And they're ready to stone Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. Because suddenly they realize that some of the things God wants to give them require effort on their part. Oh, you mean it's not all free? As if being delivered from the lake of fire isn't enough, now we begrudge God because he asks us to do something to bring glory to him? Oh, perish the thought. We're like a bunch of spoiled children, and we don't change. We think somehow we're more superior than Hebrew slaves. No, human nature doesn't change. That's why the devil uses the same methods. That's why God's got the same plan of salvation. We are inherently depraved sinners. That old nature does not change. The only way we gain victory over it is to reckon it dead and stop listening to it. But that's a hard lesson to learn. Well, these folks are instructed to go out into the land. And then here is the conclusion in chapter 13. It says in verse uh, 30, Caleb, the advocate for going in, Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that uh, that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. We simply can't defeat the giants. Well, if you have perhaps a different version, a revised version, the word for giants there is Nephilim. Now, Without getting too mystical about all of this, um, you may recall that the Nephilim 
were the descendants of the fallen angels and women that you read about in chapter 6 of of Genesis. Suffice it to say that uh, there is a supernatural element here. And they were dealing with creatures that were not just human. They were superhuman. And that intimidated them even more. Well, what is that parallel for our case? You see, you and I do not battle against flesh and blood, do we? But against powers, principalities, against the forces, the powers of darkness of this current age. Our warfare is not carnal. It's spiritual. And every one of us sitting here today who has trusted in Jesus Christ, we know we have eternal life. We are children of God. His spirit testifies with our spirit that we are his children. We know that we know. Well, what's the next step? The next step is to take the land, meaning take the kingdom. And we have opposition. The problem is we can't see these things. They are fallen angels. They are demons. They are the influences that come at us from the culture under the direction of the enemy that want to distract us from what is relevant and important and put these huge obstacles before us to intimidate us from taking the land, which is the kingdom. The parallel is right down the line here. How people keep missing this, I don't understand, except it's part of the deception. It's part of the enemy seeking to blind Christians in obtaining their inheritance, something God wants to give us. God is not there making this difficult. He's there to help us. Notice what Caleb said, verse 30. Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. And when we shirk from the responsibility, the opportunity to serve Christ in the face of of adversity, well, then we're doing what the Israelites did. After all, wouldn't it be easier just to go back to Egypt, slide back into that worldly lifestyle? And don't kid yourself, Christians do that. Multitudes of Christians do that. We're lying to ourselves if we think this is just the mixed multitude or a bunch of false professors. These are regenerate people who have given up the hope. Well, what happens? Chapter 14 of Numbers. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, and our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us make a captain, and let us return unto Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the, of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were of them that searched the land, tore their clothes. 
And they spoke unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to search it is a very good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But the congregation demanded to stone them with stones. Now, if you want a definition of apostasy, this is it. And notice, these are not unbelievers. Apostasis, apart from and stand. That's what that word means. You stand apart from a position you once held. Now, how in the world can an unbeliever do that? I don't see how. Are these unbelievers? Well, you know, we've spent the last hour or so, yesterday and today, indicating, I think, that they're regenerate people. And yet these people who passed through the Red Sea, who saw the miracles of God, imagine seeing the power of God demonstrated the way these people did. And now they want to stone Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. And go back to Egypt. You question the power of the flesh in the Christian's life. You see, that old man is vicious. All the old nature knows how to do is to sin and rebel. When God says, do this, he says, I will not. Just like a spoiled child. That nature is what God saves us from. The judgment of that nature is why Christ died. How can we tolerate it? Why should we tolerate it? If we can see this as it is in all its hideousness, like Paul said, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Remember that passage in Romans 7? The image there is of Paul, as was the case of condemned prisoners somehow, or sometimes in Rome, where they were guilty of murder. One of the penalties was to strap the body of the victim to the murderer, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. And that body could not be removed until it simply rotted and fell off. Imagine carrying around a dead body like that. And Paul says, who will save me from the body of this death? That death he's talking about is that old nature. If you and I could really see what that is, we would recoil in horror. We would not want any part of it. And that's where we need to come. We need to come to an awareness of who we are in Christ. We have been saved. Why in the world would we want to go back to Egypt? That's what Joshua and Caleb are trying to inspire the people to see. Well, they don't like it, so they want to stone them. <laughs> and you have that attitude in churches. When the truth is brought forth, some of these unpleasant realities that we should deal with, um, people don't necessarily respond with affection. They don't like these things. Well, that's okay. Grow up. Accept reality. Because once we do, the future is bright. 
Well, they want to stone them. And that provokes the Lord's defense. When it says, uh, here in chapter 14, verse um, 11, The Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me? For all the signs which I have shown among them, I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them. Notice that word. Destroy them, send them to the lake of fire. No, he says, I will disinherit them. Not abandon them, disinherit. He has given them an inheritance, but they have now disqualified themselves, so they're going to be disinherited. Don't push that farther than what it says. He is not rendering a judgment here of eternal damnation. He's saying he's going to disinherit them. Well, why shouldn't that apply to Christians too? Because that's the very lesson that we get in the New Testament. Well, here you have Moses interceding. Verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, Well, then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give unto them. Therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the, pressure, unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Moses intercedes for the very people who want to kill him. Does that remind you of anyone? You see, Moses and Aaron perform or are a twin type. Moses here representing the king, the ruler, Aaron, the high priest. Moses initially had the capacity of both, but then that was divided. They are a joint picture of Christ. It is possible for Christians to rebel from the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But praise be to God, we have a high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for us. And were it not for that, None of us would make it. We wouldn't make it an hour. We just don't understand how vile we are in thought, word, and deed. That's why God has made a provision for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, even those many things that we're not even aware of. He not only saves us, He keeps us saved. And we see in this intercession of Moses the ministry of Christ for his people. So God relents. But, although he doesn't kill everybody, he says this. 
Verse 22. Because all those men who have seen my glory and my miracles, <laughs> just let these verses sink in. Think about them. Go back and read over them. Think about what these people had seen and what they're doing. Okay? All my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have put me the test now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swore to give unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has another spirit with him and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereunto he went, and his seed shall possess it. And that promise is extended also to Joshua. See, God makes an exception, but these are two men out of that whole congregation of those over 20 years old. The rest will die. Thirty-eight and a half years they will wander in the wilderness. And that's significant. We'll look at that a little later. These men now have sealed their fate because of their unbelief. Now that interprets what we read in the book of Hebrews at the end of that book where it says you see they did not enter because of unbelief this isn't they didn't believe in God this isn't Christians they didn't believe in Jesus the unbelief here is unfaithfulness or a failure to believe all that God had said God promised them the land they didn't believe it well then they didn't enter how many people out there who are believers in Jesus, really don't believe in this kingdom stuff. Oh, yeah, it's just kind of pie in the sky. Why do you bother with that? After all, you know, we're just going to go to heaven when we die, and we'll get a set of wings, and we'll sit on a cloud, and we'll play a harp. I mean, why bother with all this millennium stuff? Well, I wonder what those folks will say at the judgment seat. God is offering to human beings the privilege of being a companion, a king priest, of reigning over the universe with his son. And people say, well, I don't care about that. That's not important to me. As long as I'm not going to the lake of fire, that's all I care about. Okay, well, maybe that's all you'll get. What then? Is that such an impossible reality? Or is it actually the truth? Well, notice now what happens. The people have a change of heart. They repent. It's kind of like, well, since you put it that way, Moses, I guess maybe, maybe we'll go. We'll go into the land now. Okay? <clears throat> well, after God pronounces the judgment that they will wander around in the wilderness there, and keep in mind, in the years that follow, their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. God provided manna. He provided water from the rock because they're his people, okay? This is, again, evidence they are not unsaved folks. He provides for them, but they don't inherit the land. Well, they have this change of mind. Verse 39 Moses told these sayings unto the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. Think about 
weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Just put that thought in your mind. And they rose up early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we are here, and we'll go into the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. Well, good for you. I'm glad you recognize that. And Moses said, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. See, now even in their repentance, they're sinning again. First they rebel by not wanting to go. Now they rebel by disobeying God's command not to go. You see, this is just a willful people. And that's what we are. That's what must be reckoned dead. That's what must be broken. Well, they don't obey Moses. They just go ahead and look what happens. Verse 44. But they presumed to go up into the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites who dwelt in that hill and smote them and routed them, even unto Hormah. They were defeated. They presumed, notice that word, they presumed to go up in their own strength, even though they had previously acknowledged that we are not able to overcome these people. Oh, we're too weak. They didn't believe God would be on their side, but they knew that they couldn't do it. Well, now they decide they can. But they lose. And notice who it is that defeats them, the Amalekites. Later on, in the book of 1 Samuel, you'll find that God commands Saul to exterminate the Amalekites. Uh, Except he doesn't do it. You know, he saves the best of the flocks. And he makes this very pious explanation to Samuel that, Oh, well, yes, we wanted to spare the flocks because then we could make sacrifices to the Lord. Well, the Lord doesn't buy that explanation. And it's because of that sin that the Amalekites continue, Agag continues, and Saul's uh, sovereignty is now put in question. It is at that point that God chooses another king who turns out to be David. But it doesn't end there. If you read the book of Esther, you remember the character Haman? Haman was an Agagite. Because of Saul's disobedience, generations later, you have a man named Haman that wants to exterminate the Jews. Sin has ripples that go on through history. We don't know what evil comes from one sin that we commit. But neither do we know all the good that can come from one act of love and grace and kindness. It has ripples. It's like that line from, what was it, The Gladiator, where uh, the general is about to go into battle and he says, Brothers, remember, what we do here echoes in eternity. It's a great line. And it's true. What we sow, we reap. Well, there's more to this. Because when Saul dies, he's killed by an Amalekite 
who takes his crown. And he's the one that brings it to David. The great lesson there for us is that the Amalekite, or Amalek, is a type, a picture of the flesh. And the sin we tolerate will eventually enslave us and destroy us and take our crown. That's why John says, keep your crown, hold it fast, don't let anyone take it away from you because somebody will, something will. And oftentimes it is by our own choice. The flesh can rob us of the royalty that God wants to give us. The flesh can rob us from our inheritance. It was the flesh in these people that said, let's kill Moses and go back to Egypt. It was the flesh that says, oh no, we can't go into the land. There are giants over there. Instead of the spirit man trusting God to give them the land, to fight for them, the man of flesh says, oh no, we can't do that. We would rather be comfortable and at ease and still be slaves. People don't see it that way. They do not see it as a distinction between liberty and bondage. They see it as a, dis- a distinction between adversity and comfort. And everybody wants to be comfortable. Well, you can be comfortable in a box six feet underground, but you're dead. Okay? It's better to be alive, sweating, puffing, working, maybe suffering, but you're alive. And you're actually accomplishing something. And you're moving towards a goal. Bondage is death. Liberty is responsibility. And that's a lesson that we all need to learn. Well, when we get to chapter 15, I find this amazing. In chapter 15, God begins to talk to Moses about Well, when you come into the land, you see, it's almost like uh, this was just a little blip on the radar. It's like, well, this really hasn't happened. What's relevant is when you get into the land. And he begins to speak to Moses about that. Because even though the people have failed, God has not put aside his design. He knows exactly what he's going to do, and he will accomplish it. In spite of our failures... And so he says, well, when you come into the land, this is what I want you to do. And we're not going to read through um, this whole passage. But he says in verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, When you are come into the land of of your habitations, which I will give unto you, and will make an offering by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering. Now, if you go through this first few verses here. Compare it to the first three chapters of Leviticus. You find the same general structure. You know, it's interesting in Leviticus. It starts out with the offerings of sweet savor. You familiar with the distinctions here? The sweet savor offerings are those things that God delights in. It's like a sweet aroma. And they all have to do with fellowship, with giving yourself to the Lord. When Abraham was offering Isaac, it was a burnt offering, not a sin offering. 
That's a non-sweet savor offering. See, the non-sweet offerings are, the non-sweet savor offerings are those things that are necessary, but in which God takes no delight. We have to have a sin offering because we're sinners. But God doesn't delight in that. But it's necessary. But when we make a burnt offering and we burn that whole animal just to give it to God so God can enjoy it, that's a picture of us offering our lives to him. That we are living sacrifices. And that is a sweet thing to God. That in the midst of this rebel world, he has human beings that are willing to give themselves to him for his glory. How precious that is and how rare that is. And that is what Jesus did on the cross. And whether anybody ever trusted in him or not, that has eternal and infinite value to God. He was not just a sacrifice for sin. He was a burnt offering as pictured by Isaac. And remember Isaac's name means laughter. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. Because he loved the Father, he was willing to do whatever the Father wanted, and that pleased him. To be a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering to God means give yourself wholly to him. Remember it was said of Caleb, he followed him fully, and God delighted in him. Does he delight in us? Well, probably to varying degrees, depending on how fully we give ourselves to him. You see, that's what the Lordship Salvation teachers don't get. They get this before the cart, you see. They make this a condition of eternal life where it should be a consequence. Yeah, there is a time you preach Lordship, but you preach it to people that are saved. You don't preach it to people who are lost because they can't do that yet. You have to be alive before you can work. Okay? What the lost need to hear is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, receive life. Now, let's talk about what God wants you to do. And motivate them with an understanding of why he wants us to do it. Not only for his glory, but for our good. So initially here in chapter 15, the Lord is instructing Moses as to the sacrificial system of the burnt offerings when they get into the land, anticipating the fulfillment of his design. That's interesting to me. It's also picturing the millennium because getting into the land is a picture of getting into the kingdom, which is a picture of the kingdoms coming to the earth. And you see, there's going to be a universal worship and praise of God at that time. And notice something else in chapter 15. If we go on, in uh, verse 14 of chapter 15, if a stranger sojourn with you, or whosoever among you uh, in your generations, and will offer an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord, as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be uh, uh, for both of you, the congregation, and for the stranger who sojourneth with you, an ordinance forever in your generations. See, in the millennium, they're not going to be just Jews. They're going to be other people who aren't Jews. They're going to be the sheep. 
that enter in after that tribulation. They're going to be the saved Gentile nations. They're all going to be under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And there will be a sacrificial system renewed on the earth. And all people will worship him, Jew or Gentile. So I think I take this as a picture of that future millennium also. But, you know, there's one standard here, one ordinance for both the descendants of Abraham and also for the stranger among them. Well, then he makes another provision. And this is anticipatory, I think, of um, what would happen in the case of rebellion. This is not so much applicable to the millennium, although there will be sin in the millennium. But it says in verse 24, Then it shall be, if anything be committed by ignorance without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one young bullock for a burnt offering, for a sweet savor unto the Lord, with his meal offering and his drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for all the congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them. For it is ignorance, and they shall bring their offering, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their ignorance, and it shall be forgiven. So, if they sin ignorantly, there is a sacrifice that can be made for that. They can be forgiven. But there's another type of sin. Verse 30. But the soul that doeth anything presumptuously, whether he is born in the land or a sojourner, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he hath despised the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall be utterly cut off, and his iniquity shall be upon him. You know, thank God... That on the cross, the Lord said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was establishing in the sight of God the nation committing a sin of ignorance that could be forgiven. And it will be. But what about you and I? When we sin ignorantly, yeah, there's provision for that. But what about presumptuously? You know, the book of Hebrews talks about the willful sin. If we sin willfully, there remaineth no sacrifice for sin. Have you ever wondered about that passage? Boy, that is divided, Christians. you got people on both sides of this issue. And maybe we ought to take a look at that passage. It's in the book of Hebrews. We go to the book of Hebrews. And it's interesting if you check the context of that verse. In chapter 10, he is talking about having boldness to enter into the holiest, that is the holy of holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he has established for us by means of his sacrifice. That we have been sprinkled with the blood, we have been washed in water, and those are all priestly images. That has nothing to do with baptism, that has to do with me being redeemed by blood, the sprinkling of blood and water, the ashes of the red heifer mixed with the water, sprinkled, and then washed as a priest is washed to come into the holy place to serve. It has to do with sanctification. 
Well, we are to approach God in that way and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, especially as we see the day approaching. And then it says in verse uh, 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, and the knowledge there again is epinosis, it has the idea of an added, deeper knowledge. The kind of knowledge that you and I are getting here, by the way. Uh, You see, it's one thing to be ignorant. It's another thing to be instructed. For us now to turn our back on the kingdom is a very, very dangerous thing to do. Don't do it. You don't want to find out what the consequences are. And it's not the lake of fire, my beloved, but it's serious. God has called us to understand truths that are the most precious truths ever revealed to mankind. We are privileged to know these things. If we just abandon this, uh, we're in jeopardy. But if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law without mercy died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified? Now, do you really want to make that a description of an unsaved person? Do you know any unsaved people who are sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ? I don't either. To say that this is a professing Christian is an error. Now, the Calvinists, I mean, the Arminians at least have an argument. They say, yeah, this is a saved person, but now he's going to be lost. Well, they're not right either, because he's not talking about eternal destiny here. Notice what it says. Trodden underfoot, the Son of God hath counted the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified, an unholy thing, has done despot, okay, a form of despise, counting as worthless. We just read that word back in Numbers. He has despised the word of the Lord, right? Same idea. You counted this as something unimportant. He has done despot unto the Spirit of grace, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge the unsaved. (laughs) Doesn't say that either, does it? The The Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A presumptuous sin. The word there, presumption, means pride, hand. It's a combination of those words. It means to do something with a high hand, that clenched fist that's raised in defiance. Like, just try to get me, God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Madness. Do we realize who he is? And that his love for us demands his attention to our training, 
our education, and our development. You know the old expression, spare the rod, spoil the child? We see fruit of that all over our culture, do we not? But God is a perfect parent. He is not going to let us go down a road that will destroy us, and especially so if he has enlightened us to these truths. Well, when we go back to the book of Numbers, I find it expressive once more of the perfection of this book. Because right after describing the consequences of the presumptuous sin, just strangely, out of the blue, we have in Numbers 15, verse 32, the strange case of a man gathering sticks. Now, why in the world would that be mentioned here? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? He's just talked about presumptuous sin. Now, the centerpiece of the law, especially during the time of Christ, was the Sabbath, right? That was for a reason. Because the Sabbath was a representation of the coming kingdom. It was the seventh day. It was the day of rest. It was when work had been completed. My father worketh hitherto and I work, was what Jesus said. What were they working at? From Adam's sin on, they have been working, redeeming people for that coming day of rest, which is the millennium. The seventh day is a picture of the millennial reign of the Messiah. That's what the Sabbath is about. That's why God said, keep it holy. Keep this in front of you. Remember it, because this is where we're going. Well, what was this man doing? He was gathering sticks. He was working on the Sabbath. Now, nobody in the congregation had any doubt this was not lawful, right? This was a presumptuous sin. I mean, a very blatant sin. And it's so trivial. Why would you jeopardize yourself in this way? Let's read the account. Verse 32. While the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man who gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they found him gathering sticks, uh, and they who found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and to Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in prison or in ward because it was not declared what should be done unto him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died, as the Lord commanded Moses. And we say, well, that's really severe. That's definitely the God of wrath, that God of the Old Testament, just doesn't understand, no grace there. Hardly. This is the God of grace. He's also the God of righteousness that guards the way that sinners can approach him and has established the Sabbath as that ultimate deliverance from sin and power of sin. And this man despised it. He thought, this is a worthless thing. This is important. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And nobody's going to tell me otherwise. Why in the world would he gather sticks? Did they need fire? Did they need to cook? They had manna, didn't they? I mean, start asking these questions. Why would he be doing this? 
Well, it's an independent, presumptuous spirit that sins willfully, and the consequence is death outside the camp. You see, there remaineth no sacrifice for the presumptuous sin, right? If we sin willfully, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. There are some things that you do that simply have judgment as a consequence. And we have an illustration here. And I think that unlocks a great difficulty in the book of Hebrews. And there are many passages that do, but you have to go back to Numbers in order to understand Hebrews. If you don't, you're going to be left in the dark as to what Hebrews is about. But Hebrews is a warning to Christians that we too can act presumptuously. We can defy God. We can ignore the coming millennium. In fact, after having been enlightened by it, we can disregard it. And if we do, we're in jeopardy of losing it. Well, what's the solution? The solution, I think, also, in a beautiful way, is expressed in the very next verses. Now, after this strange case of a man gathering sticks, we have this other passage inserted here, apparently. I mean, why would Moses write about this? But he does. In chapter 15, verse 37. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make fringes on the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put the fringe of the borders a cord of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that you may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them. And that you may seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you used to play the harlot, that you may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Another one of those verses that God emphasizes who he is. We need that emphasis and reminder from time to time. A border of blue. <clears throat> well, if you go to the covenant or the uh, tabernacle, you find three colors dominating. You have gold or yellow, you have red, and you have blue. Now, those also happen to be the primary colors from which all other colors are made. Uh, that also happens to be the primary colors you get when you hold a prism up to sunlight. And that was an illustration of the Trinity used from ancient times. One light, three colors, gold, blue, red. That's a pretty image. It doesn't quite, it doesn't begin to describe the fullness of the Trinity, but it might help, okay? One God, three persons. One light, three colors. Well, what are the colors? Well, gold is usually understood to be emblematic of the Father, the royal deity of the Father, his majestic, his pricelessness, his immutability. And red, we don't have to think too hard about that. Red is the color of blood. So we have gold, the Father, 
red, the sun, and blue. Ever wonder where the expression true blue comes from? He is the spirit of truth. Blue is the color of the sky, the heavens. The spirit of truth was to be a fringe around the garment of the Israelites. And if you think about where a fringe would be, it's down below, right? So as you're looking to the world, to the earth, you are separated by a blue band. Starting to get the picture? Separated unto God, a heavenly people on this earth. When we are walking through this world, we are reminded this isn't our home. We're a heavenly people. We are heavenly minded. We are guided by the spirit of God. Because God says, be holy, separated unto me. See, that's what this is instructing us to be. And he was instructing them. Now, we don't know how many people understood this or lived by it, but certainly some did. But we, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, certainly ought to perceive these things. Now, when we go to the book of Romans once more, Romans chapter 15, a companion verse to what we read in 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 15. We'll have to draw this to a close here fairly soon, I think. Maybe some questions. I've noticed nobody's raised their hands lately. Okay, chapter 15. Chapter 15 of Romans, verse 4. This broadens the scope a little bit. For whatever things were written in earlier times. You see, that pertains to everything, not just this case in numbers. That's a little restrictive. You know, if you read 1 Corinthians 10, Paul seems to be directing our attention to that specific incident. Well, this broadens it out to everything in the Old Testament. For whatever things were written in earlier times were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. In studying these various warnings in the New Testament that I believe warn us of exclusion from the kingdom, for instance, or judgment for sin, there are a great many warnings, and I think they're written to believers. Well, we can get discouraged, and we ought not just conclude with warnings. They're there to keep us from going off track. When we start getting close to danger is when we need the warnings. But how do we persist in godliness, in holiness, on a day-to-day basis? What motivates us? We need hope. And these same writings, you see, Paul says, are to encourage us. They are to give us hope. In fact, earlier in that same book, if you drop back to chapter 8, you find this amazing statement. Chapter 8 of Romans. And it says in verse 24, For we are saved by hope. 
But hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. We're saved by hope. Gee, I thought we were saved by Christ. I thought we were saved by faith. I thought we were saved by grace. Well, we are. But we're saved by hope. And here we need to ask the question, saved from what? Always pay attention to that. Salvation is a very broad and inclusive term. We have justification, saved from the penalty of sin. We have sanctification, saved from the power of sin. We have glorification, saved from the presence of sin. Some of those things have already happened. Some haven't. I have been justified. I have been saved from that ultimate eternal punishment. I am being saved now, if I'm cooperating with God, from the power of sin. And one of the things that helps me in that is if I have a hope. Is my hope the Lord Jesus is coming back, he's going to establish a kingdom, and I want him to say, you're my friend. Imagine that. The creator of the universe saying to you individually, you're my friend. He's not going to say that to every Christian. Because not all Christians are his friends. Jesus said to his disciples, the twelve, well, the eleven, in the upper room that night, after Judas had left, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? And that's a condition. Do I love the one who died for me? Am I willing to do what he says? Is it at all meaningful for me to say, oh, I love Jesus, but then not do what he says? That's a contradiction. That's a lie. We ought to be honest enough to recognize that. Uh, Christians can say they love Jesus and then not obey him. Real Christians, really born-again people, people that are really saved, uh, can disobey. Believe it or not, wonder of wonders, we can live in disobedience, but we're not his friends. Because are we really hoping to see him? When Paul reached the end of his life, or nearly, in that prison, that dungeon of Nero before he was beheaded, he said, now I know the Lord has shown me he's laid up a crown of righteousness for me and for all those who love his appearing. Not everybody does, but you and I ought to. Knowing what we know, we ought to love him more every moment. And if we do, all of these other things are going to work out. We will not find ourselves in the position of the Hebrews at Kadesh Barnea who wanted to stone Moses. We'll find ourselves on the side of Joshua and Caleb. And by the way, those names are interesting. Um, Brother Royce, I think, wasn't it, pointed out that uh, Caleb means dog. Joshua means Jehovah saves. Now put those two together. <laughs> Jehovah saves a dog, right? Um, we are not saved because God sees any good in us. We're saved because he loves us and because he is willing to bestow his grace upon us. But that salvation is not just 
redemption. It is not just deliverance from the lake of fire. He actually wants to make us into king's priests. And we need hope for that. That's why Paul says we are saved by hope. And that's why we read in Hebrews, if we go to the book of Hebrews once more, and I think that also is in chapter 10. Yes. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 23. Unfortunately, here we have a mistranslation in the King James in, in several English versions. Verse 23 reads, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Now, that's not correct. And that really clouds the issue. See, that's part of this whole confusion on this book. You get this professing idea. Actually, what it says is, let us hold fast the confession of the faith. I mean, of the hope. The confession of the hope. The hope. The hope is that the kingdom comes and I'll have a role in it. And I will not have spent my life in vain. And I need to confess that. I need to confess that with what I say and how I live. So I'm a testimony to this world that this world is not what's important. It's the kingdom to come that's important. And you can have a part of that. If people see us as being aliens, strangers, different, well, they're going to know that we know something they don't. And they might just start asking questions. And then we can be ever ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us, as we're told in Peter. Let us hold fast the confession of the hope. And that's why he says, verse 24, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assemblings of ourselves together, to provoke unto love and good works. See, nobody can, can, fault, can fault that. Is that what we do when we get together on Sundays, when we get together? Or is it more just kind of we sit in pews, we listen to somebody speak, and then we go out and do our thing? Well, that's not the way the church was designed. Most of what we have now is not scriptural. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that. There are many things that we accept as being true that simply aren't. And that didn't just start in the 20th century. That started in the first century. Look again at the book of Jude. He had considered writing about the common salvation, but the Holy Spirit directed him to write to us that we must contend earnestly for the faith once delivered. For certain men have crept in unawares. That was first century, my friends. The apostasy that we see now may be dark, predominant, but it didn't start lately. It started back then. Every error we see had its seeds in the first century. And all the truth to overcome those errors also was provided in the first century. The faith once delivered is sufficient for us to become overcomers and to inherit you and I don't need to be stuck in the wilderness for 38 and a half years. We don't have to be excluded from the kingdom. Uh, that's a troublesome subject, isn't it? Perhaps 
we can get into that at some point with questions. But um, let me just close with this passage from John. Go to John chapter 5, and then we will take a break. If you want to linger, I stay here as long as you want to stay. Uh, John chapter 5. It was pointed out by our brother earlier that the miracles done in John were done as signs, and they are. There are seven, well, eight signs, if we count the resurrection, that were chosen by John out of all that Jesus had done. So many things that all the books in the world couldn't hold them, John speculates, the Holy Spirit mentions. But these things were chosen. These signs were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing of life through his name. Now, keep in mind, that's written to believers also. We tend to think of it as a book of evangelism, but that's really not so much the case. John wrote this so that you and I could grow because, you see, the point is, if we really understand who he is and the power that we have available, we have tremendous resources at our disposal. We need to believe ever more, ever more fervently in him because he is our strength. He is our life. Well, he was also that for Israel, but they didn't see it. They were paralyzed, incapable of serving God. And so one of the signs that Jesus performs is the healing of a man. You read in chapter 5 of John. Chapter 5 of John. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Notice it's a feast of the Jews, not a feast of Jehovah. Um, Religion had appropriated the things of God, made it into a business, not unlike today. How much of what we do on Sundays in this country is really about him? How much is about us? Well, this was a feast of the Jews. Now there is at Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is, in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having four porches. And in these lays a great multitude of impotent folk, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after entering the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made well of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time. And he said unto him, Wilt thou be made well? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, Take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. And the same day was the Sabbath. My friends, here is a picture of the coming of the Lord and the healing of Israel. When they rebelled... They became impotent, paralyzed, 
unable to serve God, and they wandered for 38 years. Now, do you think that's coincidence? Why does John even mention how long he'd been paralyzed? I find that very interesting, and I don't think it's by accident. I think it's by design. Jesus here was demonstrating to those who had ears to hear or eyes to see that he was the Messiah that could heal Israel of its paralysis and bring the Sabbath rest of God. But they would not see. They would not hear. And the challenge was, will you be made well? Well, one day they will. And that will be when he comes back and the real Sabbath rest is established. And Israel will be healed and no longer paralyzed, waiting for some man to help. Dispensationally, it's speaking of the restoration of Israel, but it's also speaking to us. Will we be made well? Will we draw on his resources, his power? Because he's asking us to live lives that we cannot live in the flesh. We are called to his life. And that requires us to be dead to what we were in Adam. That's the only way we can get into the land, that we can inherit the kingdom. That's the message. Well, let's close with that. If you have questions, um, and then we can take a little break, or maybe we should take a break and ask questions. I'm not sure how best to do this. Um, do you have some questions? We've got, well, it's 25 after 2. I'm not sure when we have to conclude, or if we have to conclude. Are there questions now? Yes, Hurley. Well, one of the purposes of the coming tribulation is to bring the nation of Israel to the point of repenting, where they call upon God, because so far they haven't, okay? Um, The um, call of John the Baptist and Jesus, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is is at hand, remember, what John the Baptist said was, bring forth the fruits of repentance. Because they had become religious professionals. They had prided themselves in this outward form, which was fine. I mean, it was from Moses, but it had become encrusted with all of these traditions. And so they needed to, to be real in their pursuit of righteousness. I think that's what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he said to what I believe are Christians, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. People have trouble with that. They want to make that somehow a message to Jews to bring them to conviction so they'll become Christians. That's torturous to say the least. It's wrong. And yet a great many godly people hold that view because they have to, because they see entering the kingdom as receiving eternal life. You see, if those two things are the same, what are you going to do with that passage? 
what he's saying to the light of the world, to the salt of the earth, to those who would be persecuted for Jesus and have great reward in heaven. See, that's, that's who the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to if you read it. To those people, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom. Then he says later in 633, seek ye first the righteousness or the, uh, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. He's telling believers to have righteousness and to seek the kingdom. And he's saying, unless you exceed what I see in the Pharisees and the scribes, you're not going to make it. So repent. Get real. This isn't a matter of just going to the temple and contributing a certain amount of your goods or washing your hands a certain number of times. This is reality. Okay? Show forth the mercy, the grace, the love of God. That's what is needed to enter the kingdom. And I don't see a distinction there between Jew and and Gentile so much. I mean, that is a condition that he lays down for believers. But the repentance for the restoration of Israel has to do with that passage in John, I mean in Zechariah. You might want to turn there, but it's Zechariah, I think it's uh, 12, isn't it? Zechariah chapter 12. I don't know if you can call this repentance. Um, It's chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for an only son, and shall be in bitterness for him and as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Okay? In chapter 13, verse 1, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of Israel, or to the house of David, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. Well, that's talking about the glorious return of Christ when they will look upon him. And by the way, after that, they will look upon me. In the Hebrew text, there is an untranslated um, word. It's actually two letters, the Aleph and the Tav, the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, I was told recently that that occurs 613 times, which is interesting. Um, That may or may not be true, but it also exists in Genesis. Okay, look at that structure. It's untranslated. But they will look upon me, the Aleph and the Tav, whom they have pierced. (laughs) How can you ignore that? They will look upon me, the Alpha and the Omega, whom they have pierced. The Lord is speaking. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know how Jews can ignore that, but maybe there's a rabbinical explanation for it. I don't know. But this is when Jesus will appear, and the people of Israel will see and understand and then be saved. See, that's one argument that I have against the idea that the 144,000 Jews... uh, sealed in Revelation 7, are saved and will go out and evangelize. From my reading, there aren't any Jews saved until this moment. But that's another issue. I'm sorry. Any other questions? Yes. Not just barely. It didn't... 
Well, where, the, the question, I'm not sure how much of that gets picked up on the mic. The question is, where will apostate Christians be uh, if they're not in the lake of fire, if they're not eternally lost? I think that they will continue in Hades uh, and possibly be in a place of torment. Um, I studied Joey Faust's book, and I think it's got a lot of merit for those of you that haven't, haven't read it. And I know that's controversial. The controversy comes from, well, that mitigates the sufficiency of Christ. That challenges the fact that Christ died for our sins. If God could then punish a Christian, even for something as heinous as apostasy, um, well, I don't, I don't see why he couldn't. Um, it, there is no obstruction to that, and to my mind, that does not in any way uh, demean or diminish the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. He's dealing with his own child here, okay, who has gone wildly astray to apostatize. And if he's going to punish him, I don't, I don't say God can't. In fact, I, I think God should if he's righteous. I think he's going to be in torment. And I think he will remain in Hades. He will miss out on the first resurrection. Because all who rise in the first resurrection will live and reign with Christ a thousand years is the way I understand that passage. That means that any who do not, or any, any who are not characterized by being blessed and holy, for instance, those who deny Christ, well, I will also deny, you know, the second, or second Timothy passage, if you died with me, you will live with me. If you deny me, I will deny you. Well, that certainly opens the door to Christians being excluded from reigning with Christ. Okay? Well, what about those who don't reign? <clears throat> what if they don't rise in the first resurrection? Where are they? See, that's one of the reasons that people are very uncomfortable with this kind of an interpretation of numbers. Because you wonder, well, okay, if, if Christians can be excluded from the, millennia, the millennial kingdom, well, where are they? And that's a big question. And I understand the weight of that and the complexity of it. I mean, you're running against the wind from, from many different sources. Um, Part of the problem, I think, is this idea that was adopted. Well, it kind of grew in popularity and then became doctrinal in the third or fourth century. The idea that Christians go to heaven when they die, um, which I no longer believe. And maybe that will terminate my opportunity to speak. Um, <laughs> they'll cut off the microphone. Um, but, I, you know, I, know I have a, 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 a number of scriptures that to me demonstrate that. But if you have the idea now, instead of, well, I'm going to go to paradise and I'm waiting for the return of Christ so I can live and rule with Christ for a thousand years. Oh, I'm motivated. Yeah, go ahead, feed me to the lions, tie me to the stakes, burn me. I don't care because that's going to guarantee my place with Christ. And that's the way it was for the first few centuries. Well, then under Constantine... Christianity becomes the official empire religion. Uh, churches are endowed with property, buildings. 
bishops are endowed with power and vestments, and this whole system of clergy and sacrifice is borrowed from the book of Leviticus and imposed upon Christianity. It becomes an amalgam of grace and works and an abomination. Then you have institutionalized organizational Christianity. And part of that is to spiritualize the whole kingdom. Okay, that's the seeds of amillennialism. And then this idea that when Christians die, they go to heaven. Well, if I'm going to go to heaven when I die, what possible interest do I have in a millennium? What's the point? Especially when I have a spiritualized uh, interpretation that says... Oh, well, Christ is king. He's reigning now. The church is the kingdom. Well, so we're already in the kingdom. You see, the whole idea of the expectation of a returning Savior to rule on this earth goes away. And what takes its place? An an organized religious system where our hopes now are here, not there. Let me show you something amazing. Uh, Go back to the book of Numbers. This is in chapter 16. This is probably far afield, brother, from your question, but I hope not too far. I think I answered the point that I think they're going to be in torment in Hades. Um, And I think that torment is limited to the thousand years. But here's something that shocked me when I first noticed it. Chapter 16 has to do with the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Now, notice who these people are. Uh, Numbers 16, verse 2. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Now, this isn't a mixed multitude of Egyptians. These are the creme de la creme, okay? This is the men of renown of the children of Israel. They are now mounting an insurrection against Moses and Aaron. Well, this is apostasy too, is it not? And God deals with it swiftly, decisively. He swallows some of them with an earthquake or the earth opens up. He destroys others with fire from heaven. Well, to me, that, that's fearful, I would not want to be in that position and find out. Um, I've forgotten which book it is by Lang, but I think it's Clean Heart. But he has an expression in that book, and it says, a quotation, and he says, um, let the obscurity increase the solemnity that we may avoid the reality. That's kind of a complicated sentence, but the obscurity of what outer darkness is, the obscurity of what exclusion from the kingdom is. Oh, what is that? Well, let that obscurity impress upon you the solemnity of what this is. Even though you may not know what that is, it ought to scare you down to your socks so you don't want to experience it. Okay, that should be sufficient warning. We may not know what all of these things entail, but frankly, I don't want to find out. But these folks here are not, you know, some marginal Israelites of some kind. These are the purebloods, the, you know, the, the ranking members of this society. 
They are the ones that rise up against the Lord's anointed. And that's very, very common. You know, it's very much the, often the, the privileged, the educated, the enlightened, and they think they can do things better than God can. And so they arrogate to themselves those authorities that are actually belonging to Christ, and they start running the church. Now, that's kind of an analogy here. But these folks actually wanted to get rid of Moses and Aaron and then go back to Egypt. Well, notice what they say. Verse 13. This is what shook me. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? What's the land of milk and honey there? Yeah, they're saying, you brought us up out of a land of milk and honey. They mean, you brought us out of Egypt. So they have reverse these ideas. God was taking them out of bondage. They now see the land of bondage as the land of milk and honey. Now, I think there's a lesson there for us. There are Christians, you see, who dismiss this whole idea of the kingdom. Well, it's just pie in the sky, nonsense. Oh, please, don't you realize that's all symbolic? You know, and the second coming is when Jesus comes to get you when you die, and he takes you back to heaven. And all this other stuff you're talking about, you just don't understand it. Okay? And I say, well, no, I understand it. It's literal. And I'm not really satisfied with this world. But you see, to people who have this other viewpoint, this world is all there is. This is the land of milk and honey, right? You know, and God's promised us all these blessings. He wants us healthy, wealthy, wise, prosperous. In fact, he wants us to take over the government so we can rule the world. And once we get the kingdom established here, well, then Jesus will come back. It's called dominion theology. It's also called Roman, the uh, Roman Catholicism. Okay? It's an old idea. And it's based on the idea that this world is where we should be focused. The Bible says, no. It's not this world. It's the world to come of which we speak that will be not subject to angels but subjected to man under Christ. We abandon this millennial hope, the hope that we are supposed to hold fast and confess. Well, then we're left with the world. And that's where we're at. That's where the church is at. But I'm kind of a... Uh, uh, it's not that I'm antagonistic or bitter or angry. I, I have a sympathy for the misunderstanding that people have. And I know that some of the things I'm saying are, are very controversial. And I'm not saying them to be controversial or to cause offense. But if we could just get to the light that's in this book, we would have a whole different Christianity. Um, well, I'm sorry, I'm wandering again. Are there questions, any more questions about that or related things? Yes. Those that are 
second resurrection, correct? Apparently. And, be, and stand at the white throne judgment and be found in the Lamb's Book of Life after the, the damned has been judged out of their books? Yes, I believe so. You're talking about um, if it is true that saved people, that is, people who are justified, okay, regenerate, if it is true that some will not rise in the first resurrection, where are they if it is true that they remain in Hades, okay, either in paradise or, here's the other possibility, in a place of torment because they were particularly rebellious or wicked and God deems them, you know, worthy of that punishment. If that's true, and I personally think it is, when will they be raised, okay? And I think the answer to that is found in chapter um, 20 of Revelation, the great white throne, And the way this is phrased, I think, you see, this is normally taught, and I taught this for years before, you know, I studied this for a few years, and I just became convinced that what I had been taught and what I had been teaching was wrong. Um, When it says in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, notice those two terms, death and Hades. Death may be a personification there, but I don't think so. I think death is probably talking about that place of uh, deep confinement, maximum security, in which the fallen angels and perhaps humans were held. I think you have Hades and then you have death. Death may correspond to Tartarus for instance. But death and Hades were in them, um, or delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged every man according to the works. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Now, if we'd taken tickets to attend this conference, and we had a bunch of people out in the parking lot, and we said, okay, whoever doesn't have a ticket come on over here, you have to buy one? Well, the assumption would not be that nobody has a ticket. The assumption would be that most people do have a ticket, but there are some that don't, right? That's just the structure of this sentence. So whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, this, I think, requires that there are people who will stand at the great white throne who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but they obviously did not participate in the first resurrection, or they wouldn't be there. And people say, well, yeah, that's all the folks that came to faith during the millennium. Well, maybe. But if so, they died, apparently. Are you going to have multitudes dying in the millennium? No, I think they're going to live quite a while. Okay, Sin will be at a bare minimum. There will be sin. There will be death. But, you see, to me, this certainly does not make this a judgment only for the lost. I think they're going to be believers. Well, then where have they been? Well, they've been in Hades, or they've been in death. So that would allow for, say, an apostate, 
um, who has suffered some punishment for some period of time and is now raised. His name is found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, so he enters into life. But, you see, he's missed out on the millennium, and he will not have any type of status or rank in that coming, in those ages of ages. And I don't find that in conflict with the gospel of the grace of God. But I know many people do. Uh, That, to me, is punishment of a child. And it's severe. And it is deserved. But a lot of people won't go there. We had a similar question that came in from uh, Alan Zwiefel. (laughs) I'm pronouncing this name so he knows I'm talking with. I know this man. He lives in South Dakota. Uh, The question is, is the chastised correction for the disobedient Christian an earthly chastisement or one that happens after death? And my answer to that question, um, I guess my briefest answer would be in 2 Corinthians. He's probably asking this question just so I get the answer out to you folks. I think he knows the answer Um, because we've gone over this many times. It's uh, 2 Corinthians, and it's chapter 5. And this is a passage that is construed to mean a great many things. This is where we get um, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And if you think that means absent from the body, present in heaven, this is just kind of an incidental little tangent, but it's important. Before we read 2 Corinthians 5, turn back to Psalm 139. I mentioned before that I think one of the reasons that many of these kingdom truths are so difficult for people to receive is because of this idea that we go to heaven when we die. Well, what if that's not true? When in Psalm 139, we say, we read um, verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. Now, Sheol is the Hebrew word. It's translated by the Greek in the Septuagint by Hades. Okay? Hades is the place of the dead. It's where people go. Well, David says that if I go there, you're there. Well, it's absent from the body, present with the Lord, is it not? Technically true, right? If we are believers in Christ and we have desired his presence, we've prayed to him, we're walking in fellowship, he says, we're two or more gathered in my name, there I am in the midst, is he not present with us today? Absent from the body, present with the Lord? Does it have to mean absent from the body, and in heaven. See, I don't see that necessity. I think it's an assumption, and that assumption is built upon another passage that has, well, he led captivity captive, and we can get into that, but let me get to this other point first. Chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, 
Paul here is saying, well, I'm laboring now so that I can be accepted of him. Okay? Verse 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, and literally it is whether at home or away from home. That's the literal rendering of those words. Whether we, la- we labor, whether present or absent, we may be accepted. And it's more the sense of that we may be well-pleasing to him. Not accepted in the sense of justification. Paul was not talking about that. He knows that he's justified. He wants to be pleasing. Okay? That's why he's laboring. He's not working for justification. He's laboring to be pleasing. Okay? Well, why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Well, does the judgment seat occur during this life? Or at the end of it? Or at some point in the future? Well, it doesn't occur now, right? While we're living? I personally think that it occurs when a person dies, that we stand before him, and that at some future point, the verdict of that encounter will be made public, where he will confess you before the Father and the angels or not, because it is given unto man once to die and then the judgment. So what I believe from Scripture is that when I die, I mean, unless the Lord comes back, I'm going to see the Lord, and he's going to go through my life, and he's going to say, well, you either qualify or not for the first resurrection. And then at that coming day, it will be revealed who is and who isn't. But I know that, too, is a controversial and very minor minority opinion. But here's what Paul says about this judgment seat. We can all agree, I think, that it occurs after death, either imminently upon death or at some later point, right? So the consequences cannot occur in this life, right? The consequences here, it says, um, that we will receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, usually people stop reading at verse 10. They don't read verse 11. But knowing the terror of the Lord, and he's talking to Corinthians who are living very sinful lives, and his whole point in warning them is, look, you're the children of God. You are doing things that are offensive to him. And you think you're going to get by with it? His whole argument here is, you're going to receive consequences for what you're doing, good or bad. Well, if you don't get them now, the only option is you get them then. So the answer to the question I see is, does the chastisement occur now or later? Well, if it doesn't occur now, it will occur later. Except I'm not sure how that works. You know, when the Lord was warning his disciples, he says, well, if you don't forgive your brother, um, take a look at Matthew 18. 
This is disturbing. Excuse me. He tells a, a parable here in response to Peter's question. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 70 times seven. Then he gives this parable about a household and there's a servant that owed the Lord a bunch of money and the Lord forgave him, okay? Well, then this servant has another servant who owes him some money and he's just hard as nails, unforgiving. Yeah, you pay me every dime. And he doesn't. And so he turns him over to prison. Okay? It says in uh, chapter 18, uh, verse 29, And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay all the debt. Now this is the one that's just been forgiven, this huge debt. A servant in the household. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, Thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because you besought me. Should not thou also have had compassion upon thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was angry and delivered him to the inquisitors, Uh, Another version there is tormentors, till he should pay all that was due to him. Likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, Peter, who asked the question, if you from your heart forgive not everyone his brother his trespasses. Well, that ought to frighten us. It does me. I don't want to be unforgiving because I don't want to find out what the inquisitors are. Okay? I really don't want to know. I don't know what they are, but don't you suppose there are Christians who have died without forgiving brethren? That have not suffered some consequence in this life? I mean, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, you know, you're disregarding the Lord's Supper. You're showing up and you're getting drunk. You're not sharing food with those who are hungry. You're taking, you know, priority above men's persons. You're going to court with one another. Don't you realize for this reason many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep? Examine yourselves. Judge yourselves that you be not judged. That's the whole point of the Lord's Supper. That's why we should have it frequently and meaningfully when we judge ourselves. Well... For those who weren't weak or sickly, who who didn't die, um, what happens? When does God deal with them? What if you die in this state? Well, I guess you just go to heaven and get your harp, right? It's all under the blood. I mean, we, we cherish that delusion. But I think it is a delusion. Paul was saying, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade you to live lives of godliness, holiness, leave sin behind, live unto God with this hope of being pleasing to him. Because if you don't, if you leave sin unconfessed, unrepented of, 
you're going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it. And if he doesn't deal with it in this lifetime, it has to be after death. Now, I realize how contrary that is. But I think it's true. I think that's what these passages teach. And when we take these passages and say, well, that's only referring to the professing Christian, we have just removed the teeth that can motivate us. We remove the threat. We make God kind of a Santa Claus who only wants to give us nice things and would never do anything uh, contrary to our desires. Well, I don't see him that way. I think he's the God of righteousness and he will judge righteously. And I need to live in full knowledge of that. Hebrews, yes, indeed, I would be happy to, brother. Um, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is, you see, I, when I was early in my studies, and I have kind of a complicated past, but um, there was a point in my life where I just, I began to study the Word of God, and it was like when I was about 28 years old, and then I knew that I knew. I'm not sure I was saved before that. But when I was 28, I realized what the truth was, and I trusted in Christ, and I knew that I had trusted in him, and I knew that the scripture was true. Then I began to study. And I just read, I read all these brethren writers, you know, and especially I went through Ironside and McGee and Schaefer and Schofield, and I was just, I just couldn't get enough. Well, then I'd come to the book of Hebrews, and I didn't like Hebrews at all. And I didn't like James. And I didn't like Matthew until I figured out, well, yeah, but Matthew's just to the Jews, so whew, get rid of that. Um, you see, I don't have to worry about Matthew. Um, and the reason I didn't like these books was because they are so challenging and because something just did not quite fit about, well, yeah, these are just professing Christians. Well, gee, I wonder if I'm a professing Christian. Because, you know, I kind of had inclinations to do some of these things. Well, after I understood these accountability truths, now Hebrews and Matthew are among my favorite books because I find them so powerful in their instruction. This is really practical. And so when we read in chapter 12 about looking to this, realizing there's this cloud of witnesses, we ought not look to the ramparts of heaven and see, you know, Aunt Jane up there peering over, you know. <laughs> They're not up there looking down, okay? The cloud of witnesses is in chapter 11. And those witnesses are all of people who sacrificed in order to please God. They did not sacrifice to get saved. This is all kingdom truth for those who are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. They have a heavenly hope. That's the point. So in chapter 12, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, 
For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto sons. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. These are sons, you see. The Lord, the Father, dealing with his children. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he who the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, of which all are partakers, then you are bastards, not sons. And the term bastards there is sometimes translated as uh, illegitimate, which is okay, but um, bastards is okay too. It simply means you're a child, okay, but you are not qualified to inherit. And that's the distinction he's making here. So those who are fit to inherit will be chastened by the Lord, they will cooperate with that, and they will be benefited from it. Others won't, and they won't inherit. And so he comes down to this point here of bringing out the case of Esau. Now, is this kind of where you're going? Okay. Down here in chapter 12, he uh, draws in many fleshly sins into this tight span and says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person. Profane doesn't mean necessarily that you swear. It means worldly, okay? Profane, meaning uh, of the secular world. Well, sexual promiscuity, fornication, or being worldly. That should not be mentioned among the saints of God. (laughs) Just imagine if we actually took this seriously and preached this. I mean, you'd empty churches in a heartbeat. If you actually applied this, this truth, worldliness? You see, this should not even be a part of a Christian's life. Well, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. I'm so glad you brought that up, brother, because I overlooked it before. Let's go back to chapter 27 of uh, Genesis. This, too, is instructive. You know, when uh, my brother this morning was talking about Jacob, I am in agreement with that. I think Jacob, Esau are both misunderstood. Jacob is portrayed as this kind of unregenerate, scheming, evil guy, you know, until he wrestles and gets saved. I don't see it that way at all. I think he was spiritually minded, and so was Rachel. And Rachel understood what God had prophesied. And here Isaac, in his frailty or old age, he was leaning towards his favored son, who was Esau. And Rachel said, no, we can't let this happen. And true, what they did was according to the flesh. 
but what they did was right, and it was motivated with the right intention. Jacob aspired after spiritual things. His problem was that he sought to achieve them through fleshly means. So we ought to not be quite so hard on old Jacob. I think he is largely misunderstood. And I think Esau is misunderstood. Esau is painted as this unregenerate, lost paragon of vice, you know, that they say, oh, certainly he's lost. Well, no, he's the favored son of Isaac. Isaac loves him. But he's of the flesh. And so, knowing this situation, Jacob follows the advice of his mother. They conspire. They get the birthright. And then here's Esau's lament, which is one of the saddest things. This, I think, corresponds very well with those passages in the New Testament that use the word weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Now you realize it's too late to change anything, and boy, what have I lost? And that's going to be the reality of many people. And I pray it will not be with that for me. Well, if you go to chapter 27, verse 34... Verse 34 of chapter 27 of Genesis. And when Esau heard the words of his father, that the blessing has now gone to Jacob, he cried with a great and exceedingly bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me now, or bless me even also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto him, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren um, have I given to him for servants. And with grain and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be in the fatness of the earth and of the dew of the heavens from above. And by thy sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother, and it shall come to pass when thou shalt have dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. Well, and Esau hated Jacob. We find that rectified later, too. Later, Esau is uh, reconciled to Jacob. Well, Esau, although he now repented of his uh, despising his birthright, remember, Jacob didn't take it away. Esau sold it to him. Because he was hungry. He despised it. He thought it of little value. But now, when he's lost it, he says, oh yeah, Jacob stole it from me. He's still not acknowledging his own fault in that. But he wants it. Now he realizes he's lost it, and he wants it. He's repented, hasn't he? But he found no place for repentance because Isaac 
speaking here as a prophet, indeed, really. He has now pronounced the blessing on Jacob. He cannot recount that. He can't take it back. Jacob cannot repent. Or I mean, Isaac cannot repent. Right? So Esau found no place for repentance, even though he sought it with tears. Well, we saw that earlier, and I didn't make a note of it. But if you go back to the book of Numbers now, in chapter 14, or chapter 15, no, it's chapter 14. Um, remember how when the people had heard the judgment of God, oh, yeah, you're going to die out here in the wilderness? And then they say, oh, yeah, oh, no, we'll go now, right? And they go up. Well, they repented, didn't they? Well, yeah, they did. They said, oh, yes, now we'll go into the land. But God didn't repent. They found no place of repentance, even though they sought it with tears. And indeed, they did, just like Esau. But God had already made the decision. You're not going to go in. They tried, and they were defeated by the Amalekites. So in both cases, you see, with Esau and with the children of Israel, once they saw the consequences, they repented, but it was too late. See, and that's, that is the stark reality of death. That's what Paul was warning the Corinthians about. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You see, once you've died, you can't undo it. We have this life to live fruitfully aggressively for God. And if we pass it up, we've lost it. And that's why there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The regret, oh, I could have lived my life in such a different way, but I didn't. But I can't go back and do it over then. People urgently need to hear this. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil pulls us away from this reality all the time. That's his design. Satan has constructed this virtual reality, this matrix that isn't real, but people think it is. And so we invest all of our time and effort in things that don't count for eternity. It's a tragedy, but that's the way it is. That's why that border of blue on the hem of the Israelites' garment is so significant. We must be heavenly-minded or we're going to waste our lives. But being heavenly-minded is the victory. I mean, once we begin to think this way, we're on the right road, and God helps us at every turn. So does that answer the question, brother? Good. I'm so glad you asked that because that's something I'd overlooked. Yes. Yes, and those are other really good passages to look at. But does it not put those in a continual sense, in this sense, that a Christian who continues in those things will not inherit? So, I mean, as preachers, can we not give hope to people who say, oh, I've committed that sin, there's no way I can inherit the millennial kingdom. We can say, no, no, there is hope, because the passage says those who continue in those things will not inherit the kingdom. 
Yes, I think that's very true. Um, and I don't know how much of that was on the on the got on the microphone, but uh, what our brother was saying was that how discouraging it is to people who have committed a sin. Let's say they've committed something serious, uh, adultery or something. Um, that's that's a good one, probably. Um, that's not a good one. Oh. <laughs> um, but it's, it has serious consequences everybody can acknowledge. Okay. Uh, they've committed adultery and they think, oh, no, that's excluded me. I'll never get into the kingdom now. Well, that's not necessarily true. Okay. David committed adultery, didn't he? But David repented and he didn't do that again. Okay. David's certainly going to be in the kingdom. He's going to be resurrected and he will reign on his throne. So... It's not the fact that we have committed a sin or even many sins. It's a question of, have I repented of that and forsaken it? And that ought to give us hope because every one of us has sinned. Some of us have sinned in ways that are particularly dark. And we ought not let that blind us to the grace of God. Jesus died for all of our sins before we were ever born. He knew everything we would ever commit, and he still says to us, well, since you believed in me, you have eternal life. Just think about that for a while. He knew every sin you'd commit before you believed in him, and he was willing to tell you you've got eternal life. Not only that, he knows every sin you're ever going to commit, and he still loves you. And he still says, yes, hold fast. I'm right here by your side. You know, it's like Abraham. I hear sometimes, you know, in Abraham, in chapter uh, 22, um, God tested Abraham. It says, take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. And I've actually read commentaries and heard messages where the sense is that God wanted to find out whether Abraham believed. Well, doesn't God know? That wasn't to test Abraham to see if he was saved or not. It was to put Abraham in a position of knowing himself. And am I willing to give what I love most to God? That was a high and lofty position to be in. God knows what I'm going to do today, tomorrow, and as long, well, on out into eternity. And he knows when I'm going to sin. But he doesn't forsake me. So to any Christian, the important message to me is, fine, you've done this terrible thing, and it's bad. Now, you may have consequences. The sword never left David's house. He had a rebellious son. He paid a steep price. He lost that little baby. But he had the joy and peace of the Lord for the rest of his life. And he was actually deepened in his relationship. And God used him as a prophet to tell us all sorts of things about the Messiah. See, God can come into the wreck of our life, like I was talking about yesterday with the creation. He comes into that darkness and chaos and he brings light and order. And he can do that as we live in Christ.
because we make a mess all the time. The point is, don't give up. Keep going. And that's what we need to tell people. In the, in the midst of all of these warnings that we have, and we've just scraped the surface on these things, we don't want to leave people discouraged as if, oh, man, nobody's going to make it into the millennium. No, we need to say, yeah, you can. It's not like God wants to keep you out. And here's something else that we should look at. Notice this statement in chapter 12 of Luke. We go to chapter 12 of Luke. These wonderful words. He's talking here about how disciples really ought to just depend on the Lord and not be worried about a lot of things we tend to worry about. And it says, verse 30, For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now notice this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now isn't that tender and lovely? Fear not, little flock. But notice it's a little flock. And notice it's a flock. Okay? These aren't rebels out there wandering around on the hillside. And it's not a lot of them. But the little flock. But it's my father desires. He wants to give you the kingdom. He's giving it to you. But then notice this. Go over to the book of Acts. Uh, Chapter 14. You have these apparent contradictions about several themes in Scripture or surrounding several subjects. Um, some of you, has anybody read The Dualism of Eternal Life by S.S. Craig? He, he hits that idea, too, the dualism of eternal life, how different passages seem to indicate different things. Well, notice this. In light of what we just read, Fear not, little flock, my father is going to give you the kingdom. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. Uh, This is after Paul was stoned and probably killed. I think he was, and then raised from the dead. Verse 21, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, I thought he wanted to give it to us. Well, he does. But the kingdom of God is the antithesis of the kingdoms of this world. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you too. You see, if we are disciples on the road to the kingdom, we will naturally receive the enmity of the world. It is through tribulation that we enter the kingdom. You see, I wish that was understood, and I wish people would just accept the fact that getting saved is not entering the kingdom. I mean, there are distinctions here, okay? 
Because if you say, well, when I've trusted in Christ, I've entered the kingdom, well, then you have to do something with all of these other passages, especially the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, if your, scribe, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. So then you have to make that a proto-evangelism that will bring conviction to Jews so that they would trust in Jesus. Well, that's not the case. He's talking to Christians, and he's saying, you better have a practical righteousness if you want to enter this kingdom. And yes, my father wants to give it to you. In fact, he already has. But you could find the same statement in the book of Numbers. The Lord gave the land to the Israelites, didn't he? But then he swears in his wrath, you will not enter. Both things are true. There is conditionality to some of God's promises and gifts. There is also unconditionality to the gift of eternal life. We have to keep those things separate or the result is confusion. And that's why you have all these divisions, I think. Yes? Yes, indeed. Yep. That's right, and that's a very good point. Thank you for that. Um, because when you, when you look at chapter 6, he that, or you that are spiritual, restore. See, and that's rare too. You know, the tendency, because of the flesh, is that we get all pious and righteous, and oh boy, did you know what so-and-so did? And how, oh, do you think they're really saved? You know, and we get this, I mean, it's automatic. It's the flesh. It's pride. And we set ourselves up as judges of these other folks. And they're struggling. Now, the Lord's attitude is, well, go help that brother. Go help that sister. You who are spiritual, restore them. That was the whole point of the church discipline. You know, the binding and the loosing. In chapter 16 of Matthew, where God gives or Christ gives uh, Peter the keys to the kingdom of the heavens. A lot of misunderstanding about that passage, but if you go to chapter 18, where Peter again is asking questions where we were earlier about the passage about forgiveness, and he says, well, you know, if you have a brother caught in a fault, go talk to him. And if he doesn't respond, we'll take another with you, so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing can be established. And if he doesn't hear you, take it to the church, right? Well, how often is that done? And how often is it done in the spirit of restoration and not condemnation? Well, if he doesn't hear the church, then he will be to you as a heathen and a tax gatherer. What does that mean? 
because what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven? What does that mean? I think it means you're going to be excluded from the kingdom. If you're excommunicated from the church, the keys are turned. You no longer have access to heaven. The heavens are brass. You have turned your back on the assembly of God, forsaken the fellowship of the saints. They have judged you righteously. Just like when Paul turns that brother over to, the, over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, that was an act of judgment, church discipline. He was locking that brother out of the assembly and turning him over for destruction. Well, what would happen to that brother if he died that way? Do you think he'd get into the kingdom? What about Ananias and Sapphira? What about the people that died in Corinth because they were disregarding the Lord's Supper? Are those people described by the phrase in 1 Thessalonians, those who sleep through Jesus? I don't think so. Those are Christians who died judgmental deaths. Now, why wouldn't the exclusion from the church extend to exclusion from the kingdom? Now, what if you believed that? Wouldn't that put the fear of God in you? And what do we see in the first century? Christians, that they were afraid to sin. Because they didn't want to miss out on what was coming. They feared judgment. We've, we've lost that. But, you see, we who are spiritual need to know these things so we can go to that sinning brother or sister and say, Do you realize what you have to lose? You are tempting God's judgment. You are tempting to ex- him to exclude you from the most glorious development in human history to be a part of that era and to have the privilege of ruling and reigning with Christ and you want to throw it away so you can have a little sexual thrill or so that you can get high again or so that you can be miserly and cheat on your taxes and cheat your customers or take a brother to court you really think that's worth it? Well what power there would be towards righteousness if we just preach this. But we get in this quagmire of theological systems and we don't rightly divide these things and so we make all of these conditions for justification or something. Or we come up with some other explanation for them that completely removes them from relevance in our lives. So, yeah, we are to restore... And love the brethren, not condemn them. And this does work. I know uh, many years ago, um, I was at the county jail in Sioux Falls. This guy came in in his little orange outfit, and the sleeves were too short and legs were a little short. He had a pentagram tattoo on one arm and goat's head on the other symbols on his legs and I thought oh man this is going to be interesting you know I thought he was there to do his voodoo thing you know because they would come in every once in a while and just they would try to you know freak you out or cast spells or something well he didn't and he came week after week and finally he said can I talk to you and I said yeah and so I stayed there afterwards and 
for a couple hours. And he said, you know, I was in my jail cell, and I was a practicing Satanist. And I was really wrestling with whether Satan was more powerful than God. And so I began to pray, and I said, God, if you're up there, I need, a, I need a, some type of a sign that you're real and that you're powerful. And he said, I just had this sense like this hand just crushed me. And I opened up the Bible, and I was up there with the Gideons. He had a little Gideon Bible. And he'd read in Psalm 69, he was reading Psalm 69, which is prophetic. And he said, in reading that psalm, I realized that Jesus Christ really is who he claims to be. And he got saved. And then he started coming to the Bible studies. Well, that brother got out. And he was part of our assembly for a while. He moved up to cities. And he kind of fell in love with this girl. He was going to a brethren assembly up in the cities. Anyway, they got involved. And uh, he was warned about it. And eventually he was excommunicated from the assembly. Except the way they did it was a little high-handed and judgmental. Um, But it did have the result. You know, he ended the relationship. Because these things were a reality to him. Now, that's the way it ought to be. Even though they may have been a little bit pious. um, Like I said yesterday... You know, among, among people who are godly, sometimes they don't have much sympathy or understanding for these types of behaviors. I mean, they just cannot conceive of doing something like that, so they get a little, you know, condemning. But the action was right, and the effect was right. He was restored. Well, that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it was in the first century. Anything else? Yes. Kevin. Just want to say concerning that, when you have your first brother away, be really careful to do your best to restore that in the moment. I was put away. And I used to weep on Lord's Day morning, every morning, I think for seven or eight years, hoping that those men would come and visit me. And they never did. So I think you really hit on it, brother. It's got to be done with love. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much of that got on the recording either, but the brother was saying that he had been put away, put out of the assembly for seven or eight years, and nobody came to visit him. And that's tragic. But you see, that can happen, where it says, oh, don't have anything to do with them. Well, then you just kind of write them off. And that's not the way it should be. When Adam and Eve sinned, and they went off in the bushes or the trees or whatever, and they made their little garment. What did God do? He came after them, didn't he? You know, this delusion that's promoted in the world that all people are seeking God. Wasn't there a book by some was it Hubbard or somebody, all men seek God? Well, that's just not true. We don't seek God. We run away from him as fast as we can. And 
if a brother or a sister has left the fold, if they're out there in the world, they're in darkness, we ought to be weeping for them. You check that passage in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul excludes the brother. He says, you should be weeping, but you're puffed up. You ought to be mourning over this. Take a look at that passage. Turn there, 1 Corinthians 5. Because the language is powerful. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says in verse 1, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is, is not so much named among Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And understand, too, this is probably a case of polygamy. It doesn't say his mother. Um, that's probably why we have the council to appoint elders who are the husbands of one wife. Um, because it was common for people to have more than one. Okay. Well, it says in verse 2, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. You see, God could strike him dead. He did that to Ananias and Sapphira. And apparently he'd done it to certain Corinthians who were weakly, sick, some sleep. Paul's saying, you don't even care about this. You're so arrogant and filled with yourself, with all of your spiritual gifts, and you think everything's just fine, and you're really spiritual because you can speak in tongues, and you can prophesy. You're puffed up. And you don't realize that this brother is in danger of death because of what he's doing. You ought to be mourning. Well, is that the way we look at sinning Christians? Probably not. We get all righteous and condemning. Boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. I don't know. You suppose we should allow that person to have the Lord's Supper with us? Well, maybe you shouldn't, but you should tell it to them, and you should tell them why, and you should seek their restoration because look at what they have to lose. And furthermore, and more important, look at how their lives are reflecting on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're giving reason for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Right? Yeah, we should seek restoration and do it in a spirit of love. And they were negligent not to visit you. <laughs> but that probably gave you a sympathetic enough heart to not make that mistake. <laughs> well, anything else? Well, we covered quite a bit of ground here, I guess. Why don't we sing a hymn? Um, we can probably just, everybody knows, and can it be? Um, you know that one, don't you? And can it be, what? 203, is that it? Yeah, that's it. We don't need the pianist. Uh, you know the melody, don't you? Well, we can fake it. Just kind of hum along until you get it. Okay, 203. <clears throat> and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood?
Died he for me, who caused his pain, for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh, my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in his is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Isn't that a wonderful hymn? I mean, that just nails it, doesn't it? Amazing love, that thou, my God, should die for me. How many people think that way? That the creator of the universe came down here and died. For me, that's staggering. And anybody who understands even a glimpse of that, do you really want to sin? Do you really want to throw all of this away? You see, we need to get people back to understand who Jesus Christ is. If that was clear, we wouldn't have all of this need for, you know, bells and whistles and entertainment and all of these other things that we think we have to have to draw a crowd. We would have a holy, separated, godly people who would be a light in this dark world. But what we do have is that light being extinguished.
and the darkness rushing in and a reversion to the very paganism that existed before. That's why we see the tattoos. That's why we see the piercing. That's why we see all of the goddess worship and channeling. All of this other stuff, it's coming back because the light is going out. And we need to fan that flame. And Jesus won't give up. You know, smoking flax, he will not extinguish. He'll clip it. He'll make sure it's fed with oil. He'll keep that light going. But we need to be willing. And it doesn't take many. We can start right here. So let's do that. Well, any other questions or... Is everybody worn out? (laughs) I'm so privileged. I'm so grateful um, for this opportunity. Um, This is the most important thing we have in this world. And we just need to love each other, pray for each other, encourage one another. um, Because this world is passing away rapidly. So why don't we close with prayer and um, I don't know what we're going to do next, but... We'll pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this time, for this great privilege. We thank you for your spirit, for your word, and for your coming kingdom, and especially and forever for your son. We just pray that we can live lives that will honor you. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, because without you, we can do nothing. And we pray that you would show us those things that you desire us to do, those good works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we pray that uh, we can be ready for whatever is ahead, that you can one day say to us, well done, that we be found worthy to escape the things coming on this earth, worthy of your kingdom. We do love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we'd also pray for Brother Brooks, that whatever this affliction is, um, that he can be properly diagnosed and that you would heal him, bring him through this, uh, this new trial. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.